James Bond takes on his most daring adventure ever when he turns renegade and goes head-to-head with one of the international drug cartel's most brutal and powerful leaders. This time, he's not fighting for his country, not for justice, but for revenge. Making its premiere in London and opening in the UK on the 13th of June 1989 and opening in the USA a month later on the 14th of July, Licence to Kill is the 16th James Bond film and cost $36 million to make, bringing in $156.2 million to the worldwide box office. Starring Timothy Dalton, directed by John Glenn, the vital statistics are Conquest 2, Martinis 1, Kills 12, Bond James Bonds 1. Back in 1989, Variety said, the James Bond production team has found its second wind with License to Kill, a cocktail of high-octane action, spectacle, and drama. Out go the self-parodying witticisms and over-elaborate high-tech gizmos that showed the pre-Dalton picks to a walking pace. Dalton plays 007 with a vigor and physicality that harks back to the earliest pictures, letting full-blooded action speak louder than words. So, to discuss License to Kill this week, we're joined by Phil Nabil Jr., Ben Williams, and Natalie Bachowski. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Hey, this is Phil Neville Jr., editor of Fangoria Magazine, and uh, excited to talk about late 80s Bond. Hi, I'm Natalie Bohensky. I'm in Australia, if you can't tell by the accent. <laughs> and I always struggle with how to introduce myself. I'm a person who loves James Bond enough to do a full retrospective podcast on it called the Raven Bond series. And I'm just really into dripping wet Timothy Dalton. So <laughs> the sooner we could get on with that, the better, in my opinion. <laughs> Hello, everybody. This is Ben Williams, and I write for MI6HQ.com and MI6 Confidential Magazine. Excellent. So we're going to kick off with what is the motif you could hang your hat on for License to Kill? What would you put on the poster? What's the one thing that stands out? How would you describe this film to a casual moviegoer? License to Kill is the one with... It's sort of the one that broke the mold, and um, I'm not sure what the visual motif for that would necessarily be, but... So it's the one without a mold. The one without a mold. And <laughs> and, the, and the fact that it, it... You know, we're so used to seeing Bond going rogue now and just not following orders. Uh, but then it was just the, the most sort of unique concept that he was on a personal mission and it was about revenge um and it really didn't follow the formula and and the broccolis have always you know touted this up this notion that um you know don't mess with the formula um if you you know it's 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 all laid out there and that's that's the plan for success i think cubby broccoli was the one that was saying right. don't mess with the formula don't mess with the formula but you know it's something that you hear Barbara say as well and and ignored and ignored but uh, but I guess what I'm saying is is that it's the first time really that they really departed quite um you know in a in a, in a big way from that um mm. and I think it's you know more a more interesting film for for that um you know coming at it from a more Fleming approach for the probably the first time since um well i i guess majesties i mean we've we had it a bit in um fioris only but mm. you know we're really getting i think a, a decided effort to um to make it more of a a hard-nosed fleming-esque bond phil the one with the one with the one with so much golden and globus energy in it that I'm surprised it doesn't have a Canon Films logo in the front. <laughs> like to me, casual fans say, "Oh, well, this is the one that tries to be like Miami Vice and tries to be like Lethal Weapon and Die Hard," and that's very kind. It, it it's really much. <laughs> I don't know where the money went, but it is much much closer to the the Golan and Globus efforts of the eighties. Uh, specifically, if you look at the films of Chuck Norris and Charles Bronson uh, in that period, Messenger of Death, Kijinte for Forbidden Subjects. Um, there's there's a weird kind of uh, oily gloss to it that I think is is uh, very specific to their films, and you know I. It, in a way, it, it lays bare a lot of the machine, I think, in some ways, because we talk about uh, Eon chasing trends and 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 the the house style and whatnot. And and John Glenn, who I think just in these chats that we've had, we're really getting an appreciation for how he wasn't a one note director. He sort of 
delivered right. very different bonds on, under a, an eight-year tenure there. And um, this one, I don't know. It's sort of like they, they went for one thing. It's like it's like when a dog is trying to, you know, those videos of a dog trying to jump onto a couch and he just sort of face plants into the side of it. <laughs> there's there's an attempt to be a certain kind of film, but what they end up with is very much reminds me of another kind of film, is what I mean mm. by the Golden Globus connection. Mm. Yeah, I think that's pretty true. And and just I'll I just put up a hand up real quick before anybody starts yelling, is in that like I do not mean that as an insult. I, I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of joy and pleasure to be had in the Canon films of the eighties. They've made whole documentaries about the, the Canon film era, and there is uh, much fun to be had in them. And I love that there is a bond film that sort of feels of a piece with those, those films. Phil, can I ask you a question? Is this, yes. is this about film stock? Is that the look? It's of not it? even that- film stock. It's, it's, it's the cast like Robert Davi. It is, uh, it is, uh, the Florida of it, the boats, the, the the redneck Mm. bar fights. There's very much an, an energy and an aesthetic and an attitude, I think in this bond film that is very tied to a specific kind of American action film. That is not what I think gets thrown out all the time in terms of, you know, comparing it to, to a Joel Silver movie. I mean, it is not a Joel Silver movie, not on its best day. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I've seen those those action films from the, that that period that have that particular gloss or look to them. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was going to say something very similar because my uh, colleague Stu on our podcast when we did our retrospective, the reason he loved this film so much is because it reminded him of Commando and uh, right. a whole bunch of other eighties action movies. He was like, "This is Bond as eighties action movie star in the vein of Schwarzenegger or Stallone or." Who are the others? You know, you know the Van ones. Damme. Yeah, Van Damme, exactly. Chuck Norris. So it's it's that it's that real American um, uh, action vibe to it um, that so was obviously. Way, it, you know, when people talk about um, a View to a Kill being like seeped in the eighties, and and by people I mean me, um, <laughs> what what maybe we're forgetting is that actually. You know, like License to Kill is is also as steeped in the eighties, just in a different kind of eighties. Yeah, I'd say I'd say Vita yeah. Kill is, is British eighties. Yeah, <laughs> and License to Kill is American eighties. Sure, um, there's no, there's not one eighties. What what did you guys right. say on uh, Free Your Eyes Only? You said it's the ITV. No, wait, that yeah. was might have been someone else. Yeah, no, yeah, no, that, that was the, the ITV movie. Yeah, yeah, the A to Z fella said that. I think, and uh, it really, it really tracks. Yeah. Well, in keeping with that, if I can just say the other thing I would put on the poster are those intensely 80s grey morning suits that Bond and Lighter wear for Lighter's right. wedding in the start. <laughs> and am I, am I wrong in saying that this is like one of the longest pre-credit sequences? I, I mean, oh, it's, I pretty, maybe. it's pretty long. I mean, compared to, you, you know, uh, The World Is Not Enough or whatever it is. Um, yeah. It just it's, feels really long. It's one of those things that sucks me into the movie whenever, you know, you're flicking through TV and it comes on. I mean, not that it takes much to suck me into a Bond film, obviously, but it's like, oh, my God, it's this one. And then you realise, oh, there's this whole adventure pre-credits, which is is much more involved. Like the bad guy gets caught at the very start of the movie mm-hmm. and then he escapes. Uh, so, so there's this really triumphant, like, adventure that ends with a wedding. You know, it's almost Shakespearean. Uh, and <laughs> And it's all happy. And then immediately it all just falls apart. It's a really interesting uh, dynamic. And, um, and so as part of that, I, I had to say that the, the grey cravat tailcoat <laughs> suits Completely so wrong. What they, could have, what, what they could have gone with, Natalie, you know, like there's so many, so many opportunities to dress them amazingly for, for an action sequence as well. You know, I, I think the idea of doing an action sequence in – in in a morning suit is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but the, the they look fact like they're going to a prom set in Iowa. Kind of. <laughs> they they look like they're Dickensian funeral attendees. <laughs> Just <laughs> so bad, and it could have been so good. That's the, that's the worst but part of it. They the just they is- just they look like they hired it that day and had to return it. Yeah, yeah. but it was a rental. But exactly. But the thing is, like, they've even got the top hats, you know. So it, it. But the, the, this would have been high fashion. 
at this point in the 80s, at this point in the late 80s, they, they, it's not like they would have gone, let's get the stupidest thing. Everyone would have been looking at this going, yeah, great, they look amazing. Unless they're leaning into the fact that it would have been Felix that picked the outfits. And 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 given in it, given it, given in his previous film, he was wearing a windbreaker. You know, um. I, yeah. No, I, <laughs> I get this. I get this idea that like even if even if uh, Felix had picked like Moss Bros higher suits, the Bond would have gone off and had his had yes. his nips and tucked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hell, the hell with that. <laughs> yeah. Oh no! I just and had I- this. I guess it makes a difference from being in a in a tux. If you're having a daytime, you know, a morning sort of wedding, like it's a very um, and it's Florida as well, so I guess there's that whole cheesy. Is it Florida? It's supposed to be Florida, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, key US. I mean, the, but that's such a great opportunity to do something with costuming that never has been done before. Mm. Tuxedo and, t-shirt. Yeah, yes. it's, it's terrible. And and it contrasts so amazingly with when he turns up at the casino later in the film with his hair slicked back and in a black tux, and he looks so good. You know, um, but in no, that apart first, from his hair, obviously. Yeah, I mean, well, the hair is the hair is much better tousled. We can all agree on that. But it's yeah. it's you know he wears a tux well, uh, and so yeah, contrasting with the morning suit. But the morning suit is often the first image. You know, if you Google "license to kill," you often yes. get you know that image. So I'd put that I'd put that dodgy grey <laughs> suit on the poster. <laughs> and they did. <laughs> oh, did they? Yeah. Oh gosh. He's, I mean, I think on one of them anyway. One of the teasers, yeah. One of the teasers yeah. he's on, yeah. You know, at the time, it's probably what got people in, you know. Uh, people probably went, you know what, I want to see James You know Bond what, you know what, we're going to walk past Batman and Lethal Weapon and I'm yeah. going to go watch that movie with a morning suit. Well, Ben, you said they threw out the formula, right? Yeah. So uh, I guess we'll try and do this. Um, can you pick an ingredient of the Bond formula that has an important twist or is somehow unique to this particular film and why? And it could be a positive or a negative. Well, on, our li- on our list, we have teaser titles, plot, women, villains, allies, Bond, action, locations, dialogue, and style as a catch-up. Well, so I'm, I'm going to jump in because it feels like you've asked me directly. Um, I was initially going to kind of touch on the made-for-TV quality that – you know, both Natalie and, um, and Phil have kind of mentioned before, but um, my kind of backup to this is is the plot, um, and you know, having having it basically be um, a Kurosawa kind of um, also like a spaghetti western kind of plot of Bond playing both sides off one one another, and he's more he, he's less about an action man in in this we see a, a much more cerebral side of bond um being being this person who's kind of the instigator of these things rather than the actual um you, you know agent who is doing them um and i think we've talked about this a, a few times where um we, we we've said that because he is not uh, technically speaking, licensed to kill at this point. Right. Um, a lot of the a lot of the the deaths occur mainly because sorry about the backfiring. Uh, a lot of the deaths occur mainly because he has kind of instigated them rather than actually perpetrated them. Um, yes, I was surprised that it was twelve kills at all. To be honest, because I was right. struggling to think of how many it was. I mean. After he loses his license to kill, you've got, you know, the guy falling in the maggot drawer. You've got the yeah. electric eel dude. You've got Sharky as killer. What's his name? Um, Brian or something. I can't remember his name. Um, and then it kind of, then it switches gears to him basically setting people up. Yeah. For the rest of the film. And, Except for, and- all the way up to Sanchez at the end. Yeah, that's such a good point. How could I never have thought of that before? Yeah, he finds ways to kill people without directly killing people. <laughs> yeah, uh, because uh, and I I know that the the thrust behind it was that he wasn't allowed to do it. You know, um, that's obviously since been thrown out <laughs> right. as as a notion. But I think um, it's debatable. I suppose whether the guys in um, the marina were actually 
killed you know was he eaten by those worms was he just knocked out did the guy get an electric shock or you know and get knocked out or is he you know is he is he dead um sharky the guy that killed sharky obviously uh <laughs> obviously is dead <laughs> You know, well, how would you how would you count Killifer? Because he throws the suitcase of money at him. Well, again, it's like you know that's just physics, isn't it? That's <laughs> <laughs> you know, bad luck, man. Like, and in a sense, <laughs> we we talked a little bit about this before we started recording. Um, you, you know, like a kind of a chain of command in in a in a kill, and I think we were talking about it in regards to. Um, no time to die you know like who actually is responsible for for bond dying and in this instance who is actually responsible for killer kill for dying you know like is it the is, is it, it the, crest because he had the shark put and uh, you know. yeah you know or, or or is it uh or is it sanchez for giving it in in dollar bills you know? right. <laughs> who's got the liability if it went to the if right. it went to the yeah. so i think you know i think there's an argument to be made although a tenuous one, um, that Bond is deliberately trying not to kill people, um, or at least not trying to be directly responsible for their deaths. Um, and I just think it's an interesting thing to kind of step away from the traditional formula of of a Bond movie, but also try to incorporate some of these more Fleming-esque elements to the character as well. And we get really a very distinctly different movie, even from um, The Living Daylights. You know, it's it, it feels very standalone, doesn't it? And, it, uh, you know, almost in a sense, <laughs> although I, I much prefer the cinematography in um, The Living Daylights, I, I'd almost wish that if there was just a one Dalton film, it would it would be this. And on that bombshell. <laughs> so I'll go. Um, to to me, to piggyback off what you said, Ben, is the um, Dalton's performance. We have, you know, we have so many interviews, uh, whether print or EPK or, or even retrospective interviews, where Dalton talks about how he wanted to bring it back to Fleming and like, you know, uh, he's a complicated man. I wanted to, he wanted to bring that grit back. Right, and I think right. Living Daylights lets him do about maybe 40% of that. There's, mm. there's still like one foot firmly in the, the more era with, uh, mm-hmm. with Living Daylights, you know, the carriage ride, uh, the, the Ferris wheel. Oh. I moment love the Ferris he, wheel. Yes, yes, we all love it. But, but I, I think, and and you know, pushed, pushed. I would say that Living Daylights is is the film I prefer to License to Kill. But if we're talking about what's the uh, uh, the recipe ingredient that makes License to Kill special, it's that I think that Dalton gets to play the version of Bond that he wanted to play. Like right. this is what he signed up for this time mm. to me, and oh, yeah. you feel it. Uh, more thoroughly in the performance so that he he's when he goes uh, quote unquote undercover i think he's still using the name bond but you know does the hair back <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's doing yeah. his, you know, his own thing there and there's um and the, the the revenge plot which is you know straight out of um well it's not actually straight out of fleming but but you know there are moments in fleming i think in 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 some of the stories especially like for your eyes only where m mm-hmm. sent him to kill the the cubans who who killed his friends uh, the Havelocks in the story, he does go uh, off record sometimes. He, you know, right. Fleming's Bond does do some killing um, because I think some of the phrasing that Fleming, Fleming uses in the pages that some someone you know needs killing, they need right. a killing. little bit of extra ju- extra ju- judicial <laughs> killing. Yes, so yeah, I'll yeah. get it out yeah. eventually. Yeah, so so the Going Rogue was kind of novel for the films, but to me, it felt very authentic to the Fleming mm-hmm. uh, energy. So, right. um, and you know, when I think about this, and I think at the performance, I it makes it, this is where I start to like script and development stuff aside, to start to get sad that Dalton didn't get to do more Bond because the direction from uh, Living Dies to License to Kill indicated to me that he was getting to, you know moving toward that version in his head that he wanted to bring. To, to the screen, the he difference. Didn't, he didn't get to do his Goldfinger. You know, he didn't get oh. to do his third movie. Mm. You know, right. well, License to Kill is, is in a way, his his From Russia with Love, right? And mm-hmm. 
you know, he's on a trajectory there in the same way that Connery is in From Russia With Love. It, it is a distinct trajectory from Dog to Know, right, as a character. Mm. By the time you hit Goldfinger, he's really in his stride and he's very comfortable in the character and, the, and, and how he's going to perform it. I almost feel like, wouldn't it be, you're right, License to Kill was his opportunity, like Dalton's opportunity to um, play the character he wanted to, but I think sometimes when that happens, you know, you're pushing it all onto the plate. It would just be nice to have seen that third movie and seen him maybe more comfortable in that role. Yeah. Settle into his skin a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, For sure. Uh, to your to your note about the cinematography, we talked about this in other episodes, but this has the same cinematographer as as Living Daylights somehow. <laughs> I, I don't know how this is this is possible. It's just you know you look at those beautiful shots of the desert, you know the the, the sun just like golden. You know it's mm-hmm. it's so there are some awesome awesome shots in. Um, the living daylight. I, I, and, there are some there are some awesome awesome shots in this film that got cut, and I don't know yeah. if you've seen the um, cut sequence of um, Bond getting to the beach on the side of the boat with um, when they escape the Sanchez's house. Oh yeah, she goes, I'm just going shopping. Well, there's a whole oh, sequence there on the, on, the, on the beach where the boat pulls up, and it's it's oh. shot beautifully, better than the Goldeneye Beach sequence, I think, just the look of it. Oh really? But it they cut it. I time. think it's, uh, just to jump on your point there quickly, James, about the things that they cut out of this film. Um, mm. One of the things I, th- I think about License to Kill is that it that it really was made in an edit, and right. you know there are there are scenes that are available on YouTube if you if you check them out, people um, of some of these deleted scenes where you know Dalton is a Dalton's Bond's a um, been certainly been toned down in the final cut. Yeah, there's the, there's also the scene of him at the hotel room watching Sanchez on TV having a right. smoke, which is great. Mm. But I I feel like the film that we got, much like, hey, I'm gonna can you you can press the buzzer whenever you want here, uh, James. By the way, I feel like the film that we got was closer to the kind of the theatrical cut of Aliens, you know, where they stripped away like whole chunks of a uh, narrative to make a more linear um, story. And I think you get that with License to Kill as well. I think by stripping some of these, these, these elements away, even though they might have been more revealing of character or what have you, um, they make a leaner, m- more mm. kind of, um, uh, you know, direct movie. Uh, Natalie, what ingredient would you like to... Pick out that list. Look, film. I'd really like to pick out uh, Robert Davi and most particularly his pet iguana. Uh, <laughs> so vil- villains then. <laughs> have we seen a pet iguana before? Uh, I don't believe we have. I don't know that we've or seen. Since. We've seen piranhas in <laughs> Moonraker. It's just a crazy, like, it's just such a crazy. <laughs> it's part, part of me is like, oh, it's so cool. And then the other part of me, it is so patently ridiculous. <laughs> Um, because the, like, to me, and I don't know if this is something that everyone would agree on, but to me, Blofeld having a cat was, um, was sort of a nod to, I don't need to be fancy with my, um, aggression. I have a beautiful cat, you know, cause the, the cat is, is white. It's, it's luxurious. Mm. It's soft, but. Like all cats, you know, they can turn and they have claws and they're fast and they're fierce. So it's it's about mm. sort of like danger under the beauty. Um, and right. so there's, that's why you, you have a cat. And then you had others like, you know, the crocodiles obviously uh, in uh, Live and Let Die and the piranhas in Moonraker. And they're kind of about like, here's danger. This is our danger. We're showing you danger, danger, danger. Robert Darby having an iguana is like <laughs> it's – what is it? It's just it's it's just an accessory. It's just like to me, it's very again not to hark back on it, but it's like that eighties thing of I'm rich, I'm a drug lord, I need to be feared, so I'm going to have a pet iguana <laughs> just so people are like, well, yeah, that was a whole thing in the eighties of exotic pets, though, wasn't yeah. it? Where the drug yeah, dealers true. had exotic pets, and they they couldn't exactly have him have a tiger or mm. yeah, and have locked in the parrot already, right? 
Yes, well, that's, that's true. I was, I was going to, I mean, something you said just kind of tweaked something in me. I mean, have you read the um, His Dark Materials trilogy? I uh, have actually, yes. Right. So, you, you know, they have their, their demons. Their, their, their demons, uh, yeah. Yeah, their little animals that represent them. Their, their, soul, their souls encapsulated in animal form, basically. Right. So yeah. Blofeld having a white Persian with a, you know, a diamond um, kind of collar does really, I think, you know, it makes sense that almost in a, in a way that that is his, um, you know, his soul represented in that in that way. I think it would be his perfect demon for him. And mm. almost the same way with, with Sanchez as well. I think he's kind of like, he's cold hearted and he's, He's very, you know, he's very charming and he's, you know, he's, he has a, has a great sense of humor around people, but he's cold as ice. Yeah. And, um, I, I think that the lizard almost does work for him as a, as a kind of a, if, if we're going to say that, that their pets are similar to the demons, like representations of their soul. I think it works for him. It does. Yeah, it does. It's just, it's, um. It's always interesting. It kind of reminds me of the um, Austin Powers, you know, you throw a shoe. Why a shoe? <laughs> who throws a shoe? Who throws a shoe? Uh, it, it's sort of that kind of thing. And I guess you're right. They're probably having a um, a big cat or a um, some other fierce, I don't know. I feel like he could have probably had some, you know, mean-looking dogs or something like that because he seems like the kind of person who would train dogs to be cruel and attack things. Um, but the iguana is specifically mm. that 80s twist on, yeah, I got a lot of money. I'm going to, you know, spend it on weird, weird <laughs> shit. an iguana. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you're right. I think he is, he is so. Did the iguana have a banana? <laughs> he's one of the more, like as a kid watching this film, he's one of the more disconcerting Bond villains for me. Like I find him very personally threatening, if that makes sense. Obviously. I find him personally threatening in real life. So right. yeah. oh, you've met him. <laughs> yeah, you just you, don't, you just have to go on his Twitter feed. Oh really? <laughs> um, yeah. I think as we're talking about the iguana, we're probably going into underappreciated elements now, mm. right? Which is what thing, big or very small, would you like to bring to people's attention next time they watch *License to Kill*? Well, I mean, I just what I picked up on this time and I, and I had this moment watching Living Daylights and License to Kill uh, whereas I, I just I found myself so drawn to Timothy Dalton in a way that I hadn't before, you know, as a kid. My mum was always like, he's the best Bond, he's the dishiest Bond and I never got that and I think it's just my advancing years. All of a sudden I got it. There's something about Timothy Dalton that very, very speaks to the, you know, the more mature lady, I think. Um, but he is so wet in this movie. I know we've been saying it as a joke, but it makes me it makes me laugh how much he's in the water and just like in some places it's almost gratuitous, but he's never it's never like overdone. He's never, you know, it's not Daniel Craig in the small shorts kind of mm-hmm. um female gazy. It's just it's just this constant edge of being scuba diving or in the water or when he's on the plane fighting to to get control of the plane or when he's as you mentioned that scene where she goes shopping and he's like holding the boat next to her in a white shirt just totally it's it it was so funny it made me laugh so I don't know if that's something that everyone noticed first time around but that's certainly (laughs) something that that was not appreciated by me until I reached a certain age (laughs) I think I think Dalton in this movie is sexy as fuck it really is. I, I'm not gonna lie. Like this. Right, so we're gonna have it, hashtag moist Dalton. Moist yes. Dalton. Like when Trending. he's in the moon pool. And, I, I you know, actually, I I called it wow. when I did my when I did my review of this. It was around the time that the uh, Cardi B Megan The Stallion song, um, WAP came came out. <laughs> you know the the wet something something. You can fill in the dot. So I, I called it the WAD. Uh, yeah, wet ass Dalton. Wet ass Dalton. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh my god, that's so funny. Yeah, um, he's like I gotta say, like Bond is generally considered to be an attractive man, right? He's he's a handsome guy, but 
for me, it's really only Dalton who puts out that kind of, particularly when he wakes up in Sanchez's home, you know, and he's just pretending that he's like, oh, I've just overslept and whatever. And then he's, you know, whips off the sheet and he's, you know, he's still got his pants on or whatever. And it's, you know, he's, he clearly Who put put those pants on for him though? (laughs) But, But he clearly made the decision um, when playing Bond, he he's in that kind of shape that says I'm in good shape, but I'm not overdoing it. And his his decision to kind of include scars, mm. like because they're obviously prosthetics, right? They they have to be. He's obviously said to the makeup department, "Give me a few, you know, wounds." Mm. And I love that Dalton did that um, because it. It's the first time really ever that we we see any kind of semblance of um, consequence. <laughs> you know, for, yeah, uh, yeah um, probably until Skyfall, right? And then they yeah. kind of... Oh, yeah, yeah. But, that, like, that, was, that, was, that, was, that was like as it happened in the film, Scars versus... Right, and, and, but at the same time, it's kind of like... That's, that's quite a lot of time as shifted between that Dalton's interpretation right. and, and Craig's. And I think, you know, the, the landscape might have been a bit different. And, you know, we, we that makes him a more vulnerable um, hero, in a sense, because we know that he can get hurt. Mm. Whereas pr- prior to this, you know, okay, yeah, Sean Connery got shot in the ankle and, you know, it hasn't been the only wound that Bond has received, but we don't really see any kind of knock-on effects from from those those wounds. I mean, mm. you know, by the well, end... Well, I, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, Brosnan does a lot of teeth clenching about his shoulder. Oh, oh his he teeth does, clenching. But his shoulder knows exactly where to hurt you. <laughs> um, and... That's true, but that's but again, that's not that's not the weathered the weathered character, right? That's been through some shit. And I and you know, just an Atlee's point, really. I just think it's the probably one of the kind of the sex, like overtly sexy times where we see Bond being like that, as opposed to just being. I I feel like you know this and Craig getting out of the water are, are. are those kind of moments where they're you know they're leaning into the um let's say a different gaze mm. right female gaze please more of it <laughs> phil what you got for us underappreciated underappreciated well it's underappreciated because i don't think they succeeded totally at it but and and we probably have touched this uh, on this in another different episode but i always think about how it had to have been an intentional thing to ha- to casually mention that that Bond was married, but that was a long time ago. But mm. we're still in the era where we're kind of denying the Lazenby film, right? We're not yeah. we're not leaning into it yet. But the idea of him going on this revenge mission because he is so triggered by a bride being killed on her wedding night is sort right. of it's there if you want it uh but it's kind of underexplored but i love that it's not just him going off out of his mind because his you know what happened to his friend although that's certainly part of it but i i think that there's a deeper uh trigger here for for bond in in that it happens the way it happens and you on the uh on the for your eyes only episode recently you talked about uh doubling on her majesty's with for your eyes only and mm-hmm. you made a lot of great points that opened my eyes to a lot of different similarities that i didn't notice before but a double of majesties and this would play really interestingly as well because of the echoes that happen here and it Ah. might help it might help the movie along a little bit in terms of um uh like emotional investment i think because it's a nice little dovetail of the ending on a wedding starting on a wedding right yeah and then oh no not again (laughs) yeah exactly i think phil's right you know it, it isn't just about his friend getting attacked it's about the whole sanctity of of what he you know he considers marriage and you know what that means to him he's lost he like felix has lost his wife and he lost his and he knows that pain 
And I think and, there's something very specific about him catching, seeing a, a, a bride murdered in her wedding dress. Right. Where, um, and 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 I, you'll never convince me other anything other than Dalton is thinking about that. Dalton is th- right. he might not be thinking about Lazenby, but he's thinking about the Fleming Bond, mm. right? Because his he's doing the Fleming Bond, and yeah. that's Fleming's backstory. Um, and then it just you know when you consider that like uh, allegedly Dalton was approached about taking over uh, after Connery left uh, for for Honor mm-hmm. Majesties. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been a really interesting kind of uh, resonance to the whole thing. And I think it is uh, there. I just think it wasn't capitalized on maybe as much as it could shit, have Holy shit, Phil. There is a universe, right, where he did take it take it on. So yeah. we just jump in my universe, Hopper. Right? <laughs> and we, go, we go and watch On a Majesty's Secret Service with Timothy Dalton. And then we come back here and we watch <laughs> like the universe. Oh, my yeah. God. It's really <laughs> – it's interesting, and and it's interesting to sort of like put yourself in that headspace as you watch this film because it, it gives it a weight that maybe uh, the Golden Globus vibe does not. Mm. I also just want to add that it it does seem that Bond has genuine love and affection for Felix's bride, who obviously we've never met before. Ooh, does she? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mitchell. Uh, but the but the the fact that like she kisses him on the mouth several yeah, times. They cut a whole. Eight minutes of pure French kissing from that. <laughs> like there was it a whole poly subplot. You know that. You know that bit in in um. Well, I can't remember what it is. Like you know the dangerous liaisons thing where they're like yeah. they got that little bit of string of spit that hangs yeah. between them. It's just that. Uh, <laughs> eight or nine minutes. Felix <laughs> like, is winding his watch during it. It's. It's great. But they, but they do a lot of work to show how affectionate they are, even though we've never met her before. And maybe that's one of the reasons why that pre-credit sequence has to be so long, is to establish a, a legitimacy to why he would be so upset it's, for the people it, who don't. It's really interesting it. to me, Natalie, that the, the, the one characteristic that they went with, which was essentially bubbly, right, mm. bubbly yes. and flirty, um, is like, how are we going to get the, the audience to really connect with this person and, you know, feel bad when she dies, you know, without really knowing her? And they went, we'll just make her bubbly and flirty. Yeah. <laughs> and, cast her from, and cast her from that TV show that everybody likes. Um, <laughs> I did wonder, um, Della's father is seen in the car, right, at the wedding. Right. being annoyed basically like you shouldn't marry this guy because mm-hmm. yeah. he's older wonder, than me well i wonder what journey he went i wonder what I, 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 yeah i i kind of wonder what journey he went on oh my fucking god Oof. well isn't this uh, there's something interesting because isn't this actor who played felix Leiter in this film hadn't he he played him in license to kill living to live and die sorry yeah. we're talking about license to kill he played yeah, him in let some. die and then there was this big gap where he wasn't Felix, and they had some other Felixes. And then, yeah. and then no, he came well, back. He was the last Felix until a Living Daylights, which had this one-off Felix. Right? There was right. not a mm-hmm. Felix between seventy-three and eighty-seven. No. So he was the last Felix that made any kind of impression because the other Felix was, uh, you know, a wet towel of a. Yeah. I th- I think there is Wasn't much there like a- Dolly's braces, you know, a kind of a collective subconscious that that puts David Hedison into that role, whatever movie it is, right? Mm. <laughs> um, I mean, certainly He's like- Other than Jack Lord and Doctor No. Right? Other than Jack Lord and Doctor No, but like even then I could, I could squeeze him in there, you know? I, I, don't think it would, I don't think it would drastically change the movie for me if I, I re-remembered it with, with David Hedison in it. And, mm-hmm. and as I say, there is an alternate universe out there where David Hedison just played Felix Leiter the whole way through. And I, he's, I, he's still I playing live in that universe. He's, he's 80, 90, 100 years old, still playing Felix Leiter. He just keeps Come playing on, Felix. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I would, I would be down. I would do it. I would, you know, like Q as a character, you know, with Desmond Llewellyn just having that, that being that kind of through line for, mm. for so many of the movies. Um wouldn't it have been great to have had a through line like Felix Leiter or, or, or something like that, you know? Um, yeah. Part of the fun for me is, is that, like, Connery has almost as many lighters as he has movies. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I, I'm, sorry, as an asterisk, Bernie Casey obviously played Felix Leiter in 1983 in the non-Eon film. Right. Um, but but Eon-wise, it was uh, – 
Hedison's seat to fill, essentially. Right, yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. And we're veering into trivia now, so maybe we should do trivia. Well, I didn't uh, get my underappreciated. All right, go for it. But uh, I'll just I'll say it very, very quickly. Um, I don't uh, really know how to pronounce the American actor's name, Anthony Zerbe. Zerbe. Um, both he and El Toro fucking rock in this movie. They just mm. act great. I mean, I think they, they genuinely are underappreciated in their performances. Um, uh, Zerbe does just does drunk so well. Um, and the, this, the sense that everything is just slipping out of his fingers. Yeah. You know, he's, he's such a great villain in the sense that he, he has no control over what he's doing. He's like, even when he brings Bond in and does the whole kind of like, welcome to my lair. Here's this, <laughs> this, and this. Like Bond wanders off and he's right. just, He's just so ineffectual and, uh, you know, it kind of breaks your heart in a way because when he dies, you're, you're kind of like, he didn't really do anything. I mean, he got caught up in this whole <laughs> fucking thing and I bet he really didn't want to do it. He's, you know, he's never really very happy in any scenes, just drinking himself into oblivion. And I think it's a great performance from him. And And on top of that, I think you get... You know, Benicio del Toro's almost silent performance of just grinning so like a fucking creepy, evil creepy as fuck. Yeah. Like, he's so fucking creepy. You can't he's... tell me that, like, Odd Job is a scary villain, right? When you're a kid and you see Odd Job throwing his hat and you're like, oh my God, that guy's that guy dangerous. But. <laughs> But Del Toro's gonna give you Dario is gonna give you nightmares. You know, you're yeah. gonna see that glinting gold tooth as he leers in towards you with his switchblade. He is creepy, he is scary, and I think those two performances particularly are majorly underrated in, in this film. I completely agree. Del Toro is so like because obviously it's one of those things where going back and watching the film. Uh, not this time, obviously, but some years back and going, oh, my God, that's Benicio Del Toro. But he is so menacing. And I, I would say that he is even more menacing than Robert Darby uh, mm. at, at times. But, yeah, Milton Crest is just – he's sort of this wonderful archetype of, like, the greedy, overconfident American Florida business. Like, right. he is – Slightly sweating. Yeah, he is the Florida man that that late night shows kind of make fun of, Uh, you know, and it's just a wonderful, and it's not a cliche. I think he he does it so well that it's just this, it's almost sympathetic at times. He feels like a real person, doesn't he? Yeah, if he wasn't caught up with Sanchez, he'd probably be like selling shifty real estate deals in Florida. Exactly. He's he's Trump adjacent, we can say it. Yeah, it'd be it. Yeah, Marilago selling real selling time I, shares. I, I, I love him as a character. I think he's one of the most real and and properly realized characters in the whole series. And there is some pathos to his death. You know, when he dies, you genuinely are like, he he didn't do any of this. You know, like it's not his fault. He just wants to go home. I, I really feel for the guy. His death is absolutely, you know, one of the craziest in the... Oh, it's horrendous, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, oh, it's, it's so, so horrible. Oh, oh, I just wanted to also bring up, just before we move on to trivia, and I, I apologize for taking this on too long, James, um, but isn't it interesting how really the plot hangs on two insert shots of, of a cigarette, right. <laughs> you know, and if you didn't have and, 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 and an ineffectual cleaner, <laughs> so yeah, and an ineffectual cleaner. So, like, if that oh, and by the way, it took me until the watch along that we did <laughs> to realize that that's what that was, you know, Bond glancing down and seeing the the flower or whatever they call them, the um, you know, the his his little. I, I, I honestly was just like... A foil-wrapped carnation. 
Yeah, his little foil wrapped carnation. I didn't. I was like, "What? What's that on the ground? Is that a bit of? Is that a bit of coral? What is that?" <laughs> you know, it took me until the watch along to realize it, and um, it made so much more sense afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, that, that, yeah, no, that's true. He would, he would have picked up on that. Yeah, okay. And that scene itself as well, uh, as, as um, I'm sure Phil will uh, jump in with me on this, is, is so Fleming, you know, mm. the whole, um, uh, oh, God, I can't remember what, what his name is in, in uh, Live and Let Die, but it's. Um, what, Kananga? No, the uh, the guy that runs the uh, the bait thing. They go to what is essentially this, you know, place where uh, they've been smuggling in the gold, right? Underneath the instead of heroin, it's gold, right? And um, the guy that is fucking hanging out there, um, it's like he's called like. I don't know, The Undertaker or something like that. I can't fucking remember it. But basically that scene is taken from the novel. Um, and if I was right. a little bit more on it, you know, like an expert or something that <laughs> just to be on a panel of other experts. It took me a minute to even talking about the novel, so I apologize. No, but... yeah, look, you, you know what I mean, though, Phil, right? The where, where he, when goes he goes to and... the beach and he gets turned away. and Yeah, and, the yeah, guy, yeah, yeah. and then he ends up going through the trap door like that's purely from the novel and please excise this whole section james we'll, we'll keep it because that's also where they get the he disagreed with something that ate him right right right, right. right. Yeah, exactly i love that so, line you know, i'm not i'm not dumb i'm just you know <laughs> it's they lifted it slowly so good uh, so i'm available by does the way. that count as your trivia ben or you no, got something my, else for us do you want my trivia all right, I'll give you my trivia very quickly. This is the first some fans may know or may not. Um, now I'm I have a a wealth of Bond drinking games, um, and this was my first ever Bond drinking game that I came up with the Bond campers from the MI6 forum uh, when we went to see a um, a, a spectacular of uh, Bond songs being performed at Crystal Palace where I ended up living. Um, and my Bond drinking game consists of every time you hear the title of the film, you have to take a shot, um, which includes the credits. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it's mentioned you're, something. You're pretty like, wasted 10 minutes in. Yeah, sounds. I think you basically drink 20 times in the in the <laughs> in the song in the song <laughs> and then once again this isn't a country club wm7 or whatever it is you know handing your license to kill and then you drink then and then that's it but pretty much you tell me golden eye's got to be another good one for that game yeah um look i'm i've got to tell you if you want basic bond drinking games i'm your dude um but yeah <laughs> uh, that's my bit of trivia i don't think it's particularly great trivia but um it's better than just looking up IMDb comments, right. isn't it? Right. <laughs> uh, I I would like to. Uh, I think the one thing that I read somewhere that was maybe trivia adjacent is that Wayne Newton is the televangelist in mm. this film, which is a, a a bit that we haven't mentioned. But that's how the drug dealers do their work is through televangelists, right. and I think I think that's such a great eighties thing you know those mm. those ministers were really coming to the fore at that time with their big you know give me money and you will be saved and using it right. to do a drug deal is, is very good and then he's obviously creepy but it was wayne newton kind of just said i want to be in a bond film and so they they got right. him in <laughs> but he's so good in that role like he's so yes. creepy and then when carrie lowell is is trying to seduce him and he's just so up for it and oh it's so slimy like he does such a good job at being slimy. Yeah, so in, in the in the draft before the final, he actually had a wife in the script, I think. Oh, and there so were, like, they a, were, like a... There yeah. were a couple, a televangelist couple. Um, Jim and Tennessee style. Yeah, it was a bit yeah. too close to real life. And um, the whole shredder um, sequence was them shredding all the envelopes that people mailed the checks into. 
So it was this gigantic paper shredder in the original film, not a cocaine brick shredder. Ah. And they changed it. But I just love that idea of processing all the money and um, having a giant shredder for it. <laughs> this is not, our- hide, not hiding it behind the toilet like modern yeah. day televangelists. Um, I, I don't know if it's trivia, but is, is there any reason why I, this is, to my knowledge, the only Bond film where a, a Bond girl gets a glow up in the film? <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> like she looks like um, Pam Bouvier looks so cute initially. She's got a curly sort of hair and, and um, she's dressed fairly casually, I guess. And then Bond gives her mm-hmm. money and says, go make yourself look like an executive assistant. And then she walks back in and he does the classic double take and like, what, what? Like they, yeah. they, they, they've already I, had sex by then, so because they have sex on the boat, one assumes after the fight yeah. in, the, in the bar, right? And uh, you know, instead of trying to get to safety or whatever, they just hang out on the moored boat and. and That's a really good point. I've intimate knowledge of your body, but you've cut your hair. Yeah, well, and it, yeah. But, and it's uh, this, Normally in a movie that the glow up happens before the the man then goes, Oh my god, you're actually beautiful. But in this one it's, he's already he's already obviously keen on her enough to, to sleep with her and then he's like, Wait, wait. Sure. You're even I, more good looking. Um, I wish uh, I, I wish that Lisa was here to, to talk about this moment with you. <laughs> Natalie, I just think it would be a, a, a Vesper good Vesper has one in Casino yeah. Royale when, when she wears the dress and then Madeline has one on the train when she shows up in her dress. But this one is full on like it cuts to her and there's like twinkly fairy dust music. Yeah, you but know, this is not like, but this is that's that's different. And Lisa, I'm sure, will agree with me. And if not, defer to her because she's got a doctorate and she's smart. But th- those <laughs> ones are just the women putting on their dresses to go to a thing they're already beautiful they're already oh, yeah, stunning but, but there's there's still like it's like the, the movie stops for for bond to sort of notice and acknowledge it but this one like True. it's down to the music cue of like twinkle 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 this is a makeover this is a makeover this is a hair it's a and woman makeup. Moment. yeah yes right. uh it's <laughs> or, a full uh, hair and the, makeup like a teen comedy of the time right yes that's that's what I'm saying. So that she has the makeover. Yeah. She's just not has, at the top of the stairs. Why isn't she walking down those stairs? stairs. At that um, in the Breakfast Club. There's, <laughs> there's a great YouTube channel that I watch that um, often does. She sort of sort of does retrospectives of dodgy '80s and teen movies and stuff. And one of the things she's pointed out, which is so true, is in all those movies, whenever there's a girl who she's had a makeover or something, she's a leading, the leading lady, but they have to make her endearing in some way. So she always is clumsy. Uh, yeah. She's always clumsy. She always trips over. She's always like, oh, no, falls over the stairs or falls off a thing or falls down. A, it's you know, like with Bill, like just couldn't yeah. stand up an entire episode. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a way of making like, like incredibly, a newborn deer. Yeah. <laughs> Incredibly beautiful women with all these advantages. How do we make them endearing to everyone watching? Oh, we'll make them well, they sort can't of walk in heels. Oh, that's yeah. so cute. Oh no! <laughs> Whereas Carrie Lowell in this film, why I love her is she walks in and she's like, "Bam, got this. Yeah. Screw you, James. I'm in charge." You know, you, you know, yeah, she's, she's really, got it, and she's really pissed off that she she because she, she says to him at one point, "Why can't you be my secretary?" And he's like, "Ah, down here, it's a man's world." Um, <laughs> which I, you know what I kind of appreciate because yeah I, I can't assume that Robert Davy is treating women the you know like equal equal partners in his yeah, cocaine. He's got the he's right? got the corrector, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. This is what I mean. So <clears> I don't <throat> I don't um you know but the, they they, it, they call them out basically, don't they? Yeah, they do. But and they have the other. Well, the other noteworthy thing is that, you know, a lot of the stereotypical examples that you, you find with this sort of thing, it's like they they take their hair out of a bun and it's long and it's luxurious now, but she cuts it the fuck off and everybody's and right. the movie's like, yes, that looks better, which is kind of an unconventional move at the time. I mean, it's totally it, correct. Right. She's stunning it, in the movie. Oh, so good. And the thing is that haircut suits her features so much better. You know, she's mm-hmm. got these very fine, delicate features. So giving her the pixie cut all of a sudden is just like, oh, bam. And that's, you know, one of the great things about um, this film. And, and and in the 80s, there were a lot of shorter haircuts and there were a lot of women with shorter hair and it was considered, you know, very fashionable and fashion forward. And we're back in a situation now where it's all long hair, long hair, long hair. Um, so I, I like to I like to give big props to the chicks with pixie cuts and just short hair. Just shout out to Carrie Lowell who is just amazing in this movie and you know 
Um, oh, I love when she has a big... One of my favourite Bond women by uh, a long, I, long way. I love it when she shows him her gun and it's like way bigger than his in the bar. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like, oh, you yeah. came with that. Um, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, she's got a kind of a Princess Leia thing going on, you know, where you're you're supposed to be expecting a, a damsel in distress and what you get is actually somebody who is kind of really competent and yeah. no idea what you're talking about then is that a star wars reference yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah um they're quite a popular series of yeah. movies james um and All right. um yeah I, I i just think she's she's really really good in it no no disagreement here uh phil trivia what you got <laughs> Trivia. Well, I think you guys know this one, and but every time I put it on Twitter, it seems to surprise somebody. But uh, it just goes more to the overall point about Dalton trying to do a thing and kind of getting undercut by the by the franchise. Uh, you know, the, the, most of the silliness is gone, but during the, the climactic chase, when they're shooting at each other in the truck, the bullets ricocheting off the truck make the James Bond theme sound. Yeah, it's like plink 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 plink. That's Which is ridiculous. Ridic- you might as well put a double taking pigeon in this movie. <laughs> I love to do it, that. Like, on, it's, it's, this is the, it's the gritty, serious Timothy Dalton movie of his dreams, and they're and they're still dicking around <laughs> with like cute little musical winks. Like, you know, that's the, the sound the editor. That's the, that's, the sound, that's the sound editor after a Friday pub lunch put that right. in. They, were like, they all loved it and they kept it, you know. Yeah, like the I mean, slide you and I have both spent um, a, a Friday afternoon in a in a pub with the sound. sound yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know where I'm coming from on this one. <laughs> so we know we know what we're talking about. We've been there. Yeah, <laughs> we uh, I find that a curious choice in 1989. I I just also want to shout out. We haven't mentioned it, but but the Jeez. um. <laughs> When Bond is is at Hemingway House and has his license to kill revoked, and then he says, "A farewell to arms," and sure. I, I I just really like that. But then he kicks everybody in the dick and gets away, and I just right. I love that. I love that about him. I love that for him. Uh, it's yeah. just yeah. I I love how all the British folks are wearing three piece suits in the middle of Florida Keys. Yes, that's it. The southernmost tip of Florida. Yeah, right. Can yeah. we just shout out quickly as well to? Um, the movies that have homaged this, uh, like True Lies, uh, yeah. Mission Impossible 3, whose huge chunks of, of their action has no doubt been based on uh, the, the Florida Keys escape by Sanchez. And um, it, it's, it's nice to think that... Um, oh, and Batman... Uh... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Dark Knight. Yeah, so you know, I I feel like there is, um, there there is a greater kind of cultural um, impact that this film has than maybe its uh, detractors. Kind of, I, sorry, Adam. Um, right, <laughs> would have you would have you uh, believe, and uh, you know, because to to create action sequences like that is no small it's no small endeavor um the know, inventiveness of it right yeah and i you know in the, this idea that you are on these isolated um lines of freeway that just going dotting between the keys uh you know what what a great scenario for you know for not having you know for being very isolated and 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 having very limited kind of choices and action and you know un, uh, you know i think it's there, there's no question that both those uh, the the um you know the true lies and the mission impossible 3 sequences are are directly homaging this movie um and i think that's a good thing yeah there must have been like yeah nobody knows we're ripped off because that's the movie that most of the bond fans don't like right we'll get away with it we'll get away with it <laughs> That was before, quite what I remember. <laughs> no, but I, I just wonder if that was like in the back of somebody's brain. It's like, well, if you're going to nick something, nick something <laughs> from a movie that <laughs> is... Has anyone seen this movie, honestly? Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I just wanted to mention uh, just a couple more things very quickly. Uh, one is why does Pam Bouvier's dress need to be able to be ripped off into a mini dress? You know, when she Because it pulls... got her the audition. Oh, really? Is that trivia? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
Because it what? Tell tell me, she, tell she me. Wore I don't it. Know. She had it in the audition that dress. Oh blimey! So they wrote it into the film. Oh, that's that was her cool. own. That was her own dress. Mm. Well, so not that exact one, but the oh. idea of it. That's so clever. But then uh, the other thing I want to mention is how Q turns up, which is always fun to see Q on you know on assignment helping James out. Mm. He literally has a bag of gadgets like an old beggar man living in the street. <laughs> Like you'd think, if it was modern day, you know, it would cart. be. It you would just want to see the customs moment, don't you? Yes, of, yes. Of you going through like the the scanner with that but, stuff. So <laughs> I got to ask, like, so when he flew from London to Isthmus, mm. how did he check his road sweepy brush with the radio button? <laughs> <laughs> did did that go in the down? overhead, or no, did no, that go I in think the... that went. I mean, he picked that up from Station I. But like today, it would be a case with like hard rubber and foam right. casing, and everything right. would have its own slot. And it's just and it's in just there so willy nilly. <laughs> it's just this, <laughs> it's like it's, thrown in. Oh, that's a high explosive uh, toothpaste. Yeah. I'll just throw it in my my like. And he's got to put that in a small plastic bag and show that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, so, I yeah. remember that reminds me uh, of of the thing I I did, which was with Dalton uh, swinging down the side of the the, the thing, um, laying down, and then uh, using the the toothpaste as explosive, which was take a lower stance, scare a little love, get <laughs> dent tonight. Oh God! Good night, everyone. <laughs> okay, you win the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and on uh, that bombshell on that bombshell final <laughs> verdicts um top tier middle tier bottom tier there are no bad james bond films they're just ones we watch more than others so um would you vote this one in your top middle or lower tier before or after ben made that song <laughs> Because <laughs> that's going to be an earworm every time we watch the movie now, isn't it? Yep, you ruined it. Yeah. That's usually my job to ruin the films for the listeners. But thanks, Ben. I'm off the hook this yeah, week. My pleasure. I'll put it mid tier. It's 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 certainly watchable enough in terms of uh, the sliding scale of the 25 movies. I think it's it's a while being a complete outlier. It also shows how you can still color inside the lines and still keep it pretty Fleming. Mm. Um, I enjoy that. And, and, you know, um, it, it, I like it for the little glimpse it gives us into Ben's uh, alternate Dalton verse. Mm. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Yeah. I definitely um, have it mid-tier. Yeah. And I, I think I'm very happy with that. And it's definitely one that I'll sort of, if it's passing, you know, Ooh. I'll be like, oh, license to kill and have a lot of fun with it. Um, but I, I don't know how often I would, like, pull it out to go, I'm going to watch license to kill tonight. So, yeah, it sits in mid-tier for me. Well, Fair enough. for me, there's an element that um, I have a very good buddy called Adam who hates this movie so, mm -hmm. so much. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I almost like For that it reason alone, it's top tier, right? Yeah, almost, <laughs> almost goes up in my scale because he hates it so much. I have to kind of like even, even it out a little bit. Um, but for me, it is, it is middle tier, but it is top middle tier. Um, I think, I, as I've mentioned earlier in the podcast, I prefer it uh, out of the two movies that he, he did, even though I think it doesn't look as nice. I think the the narrative, the plot, his performance, uh, generally everything feels more Bondian and Fleming and, and tighter and more cohesive. And I just, uh, yeah, I prefer it. Um, and I will... As both Natalie and, and Phil have said, it feels kind of standalone. And mm. it, because of that, it's the sort of thing that you can chuck on on an afternoon and just watch because mm. it's it feels very self-contained. And also, you know, this notion that maybe this might have been the end of Bond. I mean, right. we, haven't, we haven't discussed it yet, but this was potentially the last Bond film we were going to see. Apart from, you know, apart from the Winking Fish. I feel like this would have been a really nice bow tie on the fucking franchise. Well, Dalton, Dalton and, we've talked about this before, but Dalton in interviews did say he feels like this is the last film. Um, mm. 
and it ends with him hanging up the phone, right? Um, right. So for me, I feel like if this was the last Bond film that we were ever going to see, it would have been a nice ending. Right. And, I, you know, that that is a, probably as about as high a praise as I can give it. Yeah. It would I have think been the best one to wrap yeah. it up on. Yeah, and it makes sense that Bond would have this sort of like away from MI5 and then kind of coming back into MI5 with this promise of he can go on and continue adventures of with the blessing of, of the license to kill. I was going to say, it's almost like when he quits uh, for, uh, at um, Hemingway's house, that genuinely is it. Right. Yeah. Right? If it was the end of the movie, that he literally quit at that point. It wasn't any coming back. So I like that. Yeah, Daniel Craig could have took a few hints, couldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> so on that bombshell, thank you, Phil, Ben, and Natalie. Um, if you listen to this in real time, um, License to Kill is back on big screen in the UK. Um, it's crazy to think that. I think the um, the BFI on the 50th anniversary threw it up on the big screen um, as part of their program. But apart from that, this is not one that regularly gets put back up. So go see it. See if it looks like a big TV. Um. <laughs> that would be super fun. <laughs> and join us next week where we are going to reboot with a certain Mr. Brosnan. Bye bye for now. Yes, Brosnan. Bye. Bye. Yeah.